Welcome to the Doctor's Pharmacy. That's F-A-R-M-A-C-Y, a place for conversations that matter. I'm Dr. Mark Hyman. And this conversation, I think you'll find really matters with Dr. Anthony Bosses, who's an NYU professor of psychiatry and has done some extraordinary research on the mind through the lens of how psychedelics can help us die, can help us deal with disturbing emotions. And it, this conversation wouldn't even have been had 10 or 15 years ago. Scientists studying psychedelics, but now it's sort of had this resurgence and it's fascinating to look at the work you've done because you have been researching to start with how we can help people with the anxiety of death and the fear of death and the transition in palliative care. And you've done some remarkable studies on this. Uh, you're the co-principal investigator and co-author of this amazing study, uh, which we'll talk about. Uh, and you showed significant emotional distress along with sort of enhanced existential well-being in these patients who were dying of cancer just with a single psilocybin which is magic mushroom for those who don't know what that is psilocybin generated mystical experience with cancer now first of all science and mysticism seem like they never should come together but you are bringing together in this fascinating way which is disruptive in the scientific paradigm and and you talk about things that scientists don't usually talk about like unity sacredness transcendence greater awareness Love. Wow. Love. Science. Oh, wow. My mind's going crazy here. And you're uh, supervising um, psychotherapy at the Bellevue Hospital. You're the co-founder and former co-director of Bellevue Hospital Palliative Care Service. And you've been studying consciousness, comparative religion, and how psychology and spirituality interface. And you have a private uh, psychotherapy practice in New York City. So welcome, Tony. Thank you. Great to be here, Mark. So, Tony, you and I met a number of years ago, yes. late at night at a bar in a hotel in San Diego <laughs> at a medical conference, which was sort of like an unmedical medical conference. It was a futuristic conference. It was a futuristic conference about the future of healthcare. You were there, and you were speaking about your experience with studying psychedelics. And I was like, holy mackerel, this is actually happening after decades of suppression. And the history of psychedelics is fascinating. I want you to get into it, but you know, from the 50s with discovery of uh, psychedelics into uh, the, the sort of subversion of uh, that's used by uh, people like Timothy Leary, who hijacked it away from the science and made it a pop culture thing to the suppression of psychedelics as a, as a restricted drug under Nixon. And now after decades of dormancy in the scientific research, we now having a resurgence of asking questions about, is there something in these substances, just like we are with medical marijuana, that might be beneficial medically? And then how do we sort of navigate the world of, of the historical context of this? Because these substances have been used for thousands of years in cultures all around the world. And how do we connect that to medicine, to healing? And, you know, how do we, how do we begin to think about this? So how did you get into all this stuff? I mean, you're a traditional trained psychotherapist, you're a professor at NYU. This is not like the typical topic that you should <laughs> see an academic undertake. It wasn't. Now, now it is again, which we're fortunate about. Well, one, one thing about science and religion. Um, it's true. They're, they're separate these days, but going back hundreds of years, they weren't separate. Yes. Right. They were both kind of centered around this impulse to describe what we are what is this what is well, the medicine man were the religious leaders right. and uh, yeah and albert einstein famously said religion without science is lame science without religion is blind i mean these two used to be together then they split apart and we have that um unfortunate uh gap now um i think like a lot of us in the field i began 
with meditation back in my 20s like so many of us you mm-hmm. know uh first learning tm like many of us did and going on to different meditative uh practices and i was always interested in in, in death and dying probably as a because i was a little kid i had this death anxiety when i, when I recall vividly when i was <laughs> like small. the woody allen version <laughs> <laughs> um but it led me like so many of us to a path of studying comparative religion comparative spirituality and i came across this body of literature in the 60s um through people like uh you know ram das and and uh formerly known as richard albert richard, richard albert psychology Ye- professor right houston smith aldous huxley's writings yeah and was stunned that there was a whole body of science that was used to invoke this mystical experience that we know is at the core of the major religions. So when you study the major religions, at this core is this common core thesis that they all are organized around this mystical experience that we'll we'll talk about today and define. Um, And that these medicines could promote that in the right set and setting was incredible. and you know here we are 30 40 years later uh and i'm actually you know helping with the research that i'm really grateful for um really grateful for i mean remarkably that these experiences while they offer insight about nature of self and all the things we find in in religious practice or meditation they also now that we're going to talk about seem to promote healing and clinical applications so death anxiety a smoking sensation um so it may have clinical applications beyond just insights into self. Yeah, I and mean, this is not something that sort of just was discovered. I mean, these substances have been around in cultures for thousands and thousands of years, whether it's ayahuasca in South America, whether it's psilocybin and mushrooms in Mexico, whether it's uh, other types of substances that have been used, like ibogaine in Africa. And and these mind-altering substances have all always been used in a religious context as a state of uh, initiation or ritual or transcendence. Um, and these these are not new things, right? They're not new, and that's a great point, Mark, about the set and setting, which we call today set the mindset we bring to the medicine session, setting how it's done. Uh, and for thousands of years, indigenous cultures use these medicines for spiritual revelation and, and religious uh, purposes throughout the world. And we we know in ancient Greece, we think of the Lucinian mysteries. There was a drink they called Kikion, which was probably an ergot alkaloid, similar to LSD or psilocybin. Yeah. We know in India there's uh, many references to Soma uh, yeah. uh, from a mushroom that was used in, in that culture. In Mexico, we have psilocybin being used, and that's how it led to our research, actually. Uh, we'll talk about how psilocybin came to the West and how it became aware, aware of it in the West. So throughout time, there's these medicines being used in indigenous cultures safely for spiritual transformation um and so here we are again looking at the benefits and this was something that was really aggressively studied by the government by academic institutions in the 50s and 60s it was thought to be one of the greatest boons to psychiatry and what happened with all that research yeah so that's that's a great story um it's a remarkable story that in a recent book michael Pollan wrote you know chronicled this history um it be, the modern research begins in the late 30s when Albert Hoffman, a, a chemist uh, in Europe, discovers LSD by accident. Yeah. He got uh, some on his fingers and sucked his finger. Right. <laughs> and so in 43, a couple of years later, he actually ingested it by accident, had the first uh, LSD, human LSD experience, uh, and, and then began the research. Like, what is the state of awareness about? Uh, and became work research with alcoholism and people who were dying of cancer throughout the late 50s, more into the early 60s. 
that could this medicine-induced experience that looked just like mystical experience that we find, find naturally occurring throughout the ages. And we define that, as they did in the 60s in this research, as unity, a strong sense of everything's connected, a sense of transcendence, transcending time and place, past, present, and future, um, uh, awe, sense of awe and affability, difficult to describe. And so they found they could promote these experiences, and it showed promising clinical benefits in alcoholism, and the people who were dying of cancer mm. uh, back in the fifties and sixties. Back in the sixties, um, at Johns at Johns Hopkins, that Spring Grove was the name of the place back then. Um, and it's incredible work being done. It's a, it's a solid body of literature. And then, as we all know, and there was also a study with um, uh, theology students where they gave them psilocybin to see if the experience was like the naturally occurring kind we see throughout time, uh, it was called the Good Friday Experiment. Walter Penke, a great psychiatrist, and... Uh, it must uh, been a very good Friday. It was a very good Friday <laughs> for, the, for, the, for these 10 students up in Boston um, at Marsh Chapel. Uh, and it's a very famous study, the first one with healthy uh, participants, to show that... And Houston Smith, the great religious scholar, was a student in that study. Oh. Um, and kick-started his, his life journey, you know, further deepening his interest in religion, but also these experiences of psychedelics or entheogens, as we call them as well, meaning the divine within. Um, and then, as we all know, in the, in the mid-60s, uh, the counterculture became using them more and more. Uh, it got on the radar. They weren't even illegal back then. They were not illegal. So they were used in research, and they would become used recreationally. Uh, and then, you know, Timothy Leary and, and, and many others began to... Uh, speak of its benefits and it caught on with the culture itself and by 1970 Richard Nixon signed a, a, a congressional uh, a law policy that made these medicines not only illegal for the culture but out of the reach of research which is stunning and you never see that in medicine that's not and science it's not science what would a compound be taken out of the sphere of research with clinical application because of a cultural cultural problem um, you know, you've never seen that. It's a remarkable like, benchmark. Uh, I mean, yeah, now 1970 was a rough year, and Richard Nixon was probably afraid of all the hippies taking over the country. <laughs> there is speculation. There's some documents that it was it was a, it's a part of political move. Um, and LSD had become actually illegal a few years before, but in '70 he made this out of the realm of research. Um, it'll be similar today. I mean, opiates have a horrible opiate problem, but we use them also medically, right? So that was stunning. Um, and for 30 years or more, nothing happened, which is really incredible. It's this promising medicine. And more importantly, the experience that they generate, not yeah. just a medicine. I try to always remember to say it's not a drug study per se. It's about the experience it invokes. Um, then in the late 90s, uh, Rick Straussman began doing some work with the DMT. Then in the 2000s, began this psilocybin work. Um, first was healthy normals, as we call them, healthy people. And then uh, the study we'll talk about today, um, people with anxiety associated with a cancer diagnosis mm -hmm. and other applications as well. So the, the avenue of sort of psychedelic research was sort of started as a sort of almost a medical inquiry. Yeah. And got sidetracked. And now we're coming back into it. So is there an understanding of the biology of what's happening? Because it seems like, you know, we all have had in our lives a moment of mystical connection, whether it's in the moment of love, whether it's being on top of a mountain, whether it's just some spontaneous experience that 
is fleeting and short-lived that we can't get back to. But something's happening biochemically in our brain that's causing that. So what are, what are the properties of these substances that do this? And what is the neurobiochemistry of these states? Do we know? Yes, we know a bit. I'm not a neuroscientist, but I'll, I'll get to that in, in a second. But I, I like that you mentioned that we all have these experiences. So they've been called different things, peak experiences, mystical, numinous. Um, and they occur naturally all the time. Children have them, we all have them. But you're right, little brief glimpses. Like during we're, meditation. We're, in, we're enraptured. We're rapture, absorbed all, in our experience Yeah, fully. I mean, the foundation of religion, the saints and the mystics seem to have these naturally occurring, right? Um, meditation, being in nature, dancing. Uh, there's a host of activities that could trigger a peak or mystical experience. Abraham Maslow, the great American psychologist, called them peak experiences. And they were natural. There's a recent Pew study that shows that 49% of people report having mystical experiences in their lives. Just naturally. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, these medicines provoke, promote it in a very significant way, hours of the experience versus a few minutes. In terms of the neurobiology, we, we know that it's, it activates upon a serotonergic receptor, um, which is the primary receptor for these medicines. When that receptor is blocked, um, the experiences don't happen uh, mm. in the same way. So it is serotonergically modular media. Was it like super Prozac? Or <laughs> well, you know, we know very little about the neuroscience, but we know the, ser we know the serotonin. Um, and there's now speculation, something called the default mode network gets quiets down, which is kind of this, the part of the, the brain that links to part of our mind that forms a sense of self. Um, the so-called ego, um, and that quiets down, but other parts of the brain might be able to cross-talk in a more uh, direct way. So, well, essentially, um, you know, we we as humans think that everything we see, feel, smell, touch, hear, is all that there is. But we know that there are many other sensory experiences that we don't have the bandwidth for: our spectrum of light, our spectrum of hearing, our spectrum of smell, our spectrum of temperature sensation. I mean, snakes can actually have this massive ability. Mm to detect temperature changes so they can see if there's something warm around them to go Incredible. bite or eat, yeah, yeah. you know, and, and, uh, and yet we think well, what we see is all there is, right? It's a, it's a very interesting thing. And so maybe these drugs actually help us expand our sensory ability to kind of process information or see different things or relate to what we're doing differently. It seems to do that, Mark. Yeah. It's, um, it's easy to talk about the biology a lot because we can see that as well in terms of, you know, fMRIs and PET scans. What I what I find remarkable is that it seems to again trigger something that's naturally occurring in humans. And the, the, the MRI and functional things actually show changes. They show parts of the brain light up that are similar to meditation studies as well. Uh, but again, I'm not the neuroscientist, so but there are these overlapping parts of the brain that we think are linked with both experiences. But what I'm struck by is that you know we're wired for meaning, right? And these experiences, meaning-making, transcendence, ineffability, sacredness, awe, unity, um, happen naturally. So something in our nature has us wired for these incredible experiences that seem pro-ethical and pro-social, right? Um, I mean, you said something really important, which is they help you dissolve the ego. Right, the sense of, right, the We meaning. live in a very structured view of the world most of the time, most of us, with very limited understanding of our connection to everything else. So... Almost like we, we live in this world where we're focused on our ego and our own life and our own needs and our own purpose and our own connections, but not really understanding the, the ways in which we're connected to everything that matters. And I think that's what these drugs seem to do. They seem to sort of break down and dissolve the ego, which can take decades of meditation. It's almost like a spiritual shortcut. Yeah. Uh, is that a bad thing? 
<laughs> that was a bad thing. I think you described it very well, actually. Um, it, it, so I'm that, not going to be in a cave for nine years in the dark. Right, it's hard, <laughs> right, right, right. 20 years of a meditation practice. It, it, it does remove the, you know, part of the mystical experience definition is it removes the observer-observed kind of the boundaries, right? Yeah. Um, it's like it's like that joke about uh, this. There was a, this guy on on uh, a news show, Asa Dalai Lama. Uh, have you heard about the, the what kind of pizza the Dalai Lama likes? And uh, he goes, I, I, one with everything. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Except Dalai Lama didn't know what he was talking right, about. Right, right, one with right. everything. <laughs> right. But that oneness with everything is, is really, I mean, in the cancer study, that was healing. I mean, part of this notion of transcendence, which is just incredible to hear the stories from these patients. They transcend this, whatever this, this me is, this body, right? Um, and the attachments to identity, you know, you're a doctor, you're this, we're a man, begin to kind of dissolve or fade away. So then what's left? If we lose all these um, attachments to the body, to identity, then what's left? And they experience that. And what they tell us, you know, often, is there something, there's something more enduring within me or outside yeah. biology, outside my, because we don't know what generates consciousness, right? Yeah. If it's the brain or if it's somehow out there and we're, this is a mediator for it. Yeah. And to hear people with cancer whose bodies beginning to fail and may stop functioning, death, that I'm not just this body. Yeah. I'm not this cancer. It's incredible. Powerful. I'm not my mind. That. I'm not my thoughts. I'm not my emotions. I'm not my body. I'm not this body. Yeah. So this body's breaking down and, and stopping to work. But I'm not that. I'm something else. And again, those are spiritual insights we see in religion as well, um, in terms of pure awareness, or it's called different things, Brahman or Christ consciousness, um, a Buddha nature. But to hear a person dying of cancer say that, and that alleviates their fear of death because I'm something. I might be something more. Mm, it's powerful. What a gift, right? Yeah. What a gift. It's it's really. We hear that over and over in terms of those. It's interesting too the the mediating factor in the in the research um, in the few of these studies, including the cancer study, is that the more robust the mystical experience, the more uh, the, the greater increase in clinical outcome. In other words, the more they endorsed feelings of sacredness, transcendence, unity, ineffability, these core constructs of a mystical experience, yeah. the greater the decrease in depression anxiety, yeah. uh, something called demoralization, an awful experience when you're dying, yeah. hopelessness. So again, we're wired for these experiences. When that, The greater that that experience, and then all have the mystical experience. There are different levels of- Is it uh, dose-dependent? We, we don't think so. Uh, to a degree it is. It, we'll, I'll get into that in a second. Um, but that the greater that experience, or when it's achieved, you get these clinical outcomes as well, which is remarkable. Uh, so that oneness with everything, is, you know, has kind of a 60s, you know, right, right. the pizza story right now. <laughs> um, but to experience that briefly for a few hours and come back and then report the, their experience and then see these changes. Yeah. So we saw changes in depression, anxiety, demoralization for up to six months in 80% of the patients. And we're going to keep tracking them. Yeah. And it's remarkable. It's not like, you know, going to a party or going to the Grateful Dead concert and taking some mushrooms. You're actually in a very specific therapeutic setting. And I'd love for you to share some stories and the experience of what people go through and how you set it up. You call it the set and the setting and why that's important and what people actually experience. That's, that's great. So it's really, and I'm glad you brought that up. It's important for the viewer to know that um, 
there's a certain way we do this. Because a lot of people take these drugs and they don't have those no. experiences. They might be at a party or, you know, it's like they're not necessarily having that transition. No, experience. they may have panic experiences. Right. Panic is the most common adverse effect, right? Um, so importantly, the, the, you know, we're, we're so indebted to the prior researchers. The way we do the research now is the same as was done back in the 1960s. We have better research uh, methods and statistical analyses, right? But the the, the method builds upon these early pioneers. So, um, an important distinction, most medicines people take, blood pressure, anti-anxiety, pain medicines, whatever they're taking, they take every day to maintain the desired effect, right? This, these this studies, this medicine yeah. is used once. One dose. One dose, out of your short half-life. So out of your system by the end of the day, before the day's over, actually. And the experience can generate changes, significant changes, for a period of time going out. I mean, there were people from the 60s who have followed up decades later, and they still report it as the single most meaningful or spiritually significant experience of my life. So it's more like an experience study versus a drug study. Yeah. The drug is a catalyst for that experience. Then the experience just seems to change us when we when it recalibrates what what we are self yeah. sense of nature. In terms of the day, it's um, so we we meet. Let's say the cancer study. We meet them and we spend four weeks getting to know them, like meeting once a week, uh, preparing them for the session. And the most important preparation is to uh, let them know that the most important position to take during the experience is to let go into the unfolding changes in consciousness. Mm -hmm. so, don't like try a, to control it. Don't try to control it or avoid something. Uh, sort of like if a positive meditation, mindfulness, yeah. we stay with the unfolding changes. And no matter what comes up, even something frightening, these people are dying, some of them. So death itself, dark images, difficult memories, move into it. Stay with it. You'll be safe. Go into the experience. And I've never seen an experience where it didn't change to a teachable a transformational moment. So by staying with it, it changes to something more, um, you know, an insight, uh, which in itself is remarkable. If they avoid it, it can create kind of panic or anxiety. So we spend four weeks getting to know them. Trust and rapport are the sing is the single most buffer against an adverse effect. So they feel safe in the room. They feel safe with us. Because you're you're with them in the We're room. We're right there. Yeah, I'll describe it. It's that. like We're a right, living room. It's, it's a gorgeous setting, nice rug and art and dim lighting. Um, and so they're prepared for four weeks. Then the day of the session, uh, they come in early. Um, again, their recommendations, trust yourself. Trust wisdom. Trust consciousness. Trust the medicine. Trust the guides you're working with. So trust is really kind of cultivated. Mm -hmm. uh, they take the capsule which in this study was were double blind, meaning the researchers nor the patient knew was it placebo or psilocybin. Yeah. And if it's psilocybin, within an hour or so, it'll begin to have its effects. They spend the day lying on a, a, a couch made into kind of a bed for the day, um, wearing headphones that play a, a gorgeous playlist of music, mm. mostly classical. Grateful and, Dead. No, no Grateful Dead. <laughs> <laughs> it would be nice, but it's mostly classical and strings <laughs> and kind of background instrumental music yeah. uh, to serve as a trajectory for the experience in a way. Mm -hmm. uh, and they wear eye shades. Uh, mm -hmm. And both are, both are there to encourage going within. 
And you're not, they're not talking to you. You're not, you're not talking. talking. Now, if they like, they could take them off, of course, and sit up and talk if they need to. Uh, they have to go to the restroom often. So we take them out for the bathroom. Uh, but on the, on the, on the ideal days, they're saying very little. And part of the prep was don't feel a need to report to us what's happening. Mm-hmm. Go into the experience. We'll, we're here watching your body and you're safe, but go into the experience and we'll talk tonight and more so the next day. So if we can, we turn off the intellect for the day and have them go to the experience. If they need to, we're there for reassurance. Um, we're right there the entire time, providing assurance. That means, may mean holding a hand during a rough stretch or to reassure them they're safe. Um, the peak, the peak stretch of this is about three hours where a lot happens uh, for them internally. You don't always see it from observing them. Yeah, they just got the eye shades and the headphones on. So you may phone. see tears. You may hear they may be laughing. Uh, <laughs> they may it's because it's joyful in many parts of it. It's glorious, they would say. It's also difficult at times. Uh, they may speak, and I write down what they're telling me, so I can tell them later what they said and remind them what was that stretch about. It's moving, Mark, to see um, to hear the stories. So what happens after? Then you you meet with them, and, and then around four or five o'clock, they're coming out of that state of awareness back into ordinary consciousness. Uh, they do some questionnaires for us, of course, it's research. And they go home at 5, 6 o'clock, back in ordinary consciousness. Then we have a series of meetings, it's called integration meetings, where we talk about the experience. Um, what do you hear? Well, we hear remarkable stuff. So in the cancer study, we hear... Often you hear that consciousness may not stop at the body. So I'm, I'm not this body. So that's... Obviously, uh, profoundly mitigating, mitigating, uh, yeah. If this is all there is, then right, right, it's kind of bleak, <laughs> right? However, some say that happens, it's, it's fate when I die, I die, but they accept it. Um, we spoke earlier about love comes up a lot, which is striking to hear. So, we're scientists mm-hmm. and. Throughout this research, the contemporary studies at Johns Hopkins, UCLA, NYU, going back to the, you know, half a century ago, this notion of love being spoken about so frequently is remarkable. And we hear that that was part of the, the experience that recalibrated their thoughts about death. And it's not just love for each other. So we hear three kinds of love, the way mm. I try to categorize it. One is they have a, um, kind of a pronounced loving kindness towards himself so they're dying so forgiveness towards himself towards others a loving kindness to accept how they live their life a loving kindness towards others in their life including throughout their lifespan mm-hmm. even difficult relationships revisiting those relationships offering forgiveness internally and then what i find remarkable is this greater love that you hear in religion or meditation research um that love is the ground of being. Uh, it's the substance of existence. Uh, I like to use the word Greek word agape, right? Yeah. And and they use this over and from within that framework, there's a sense that I'm okay. Mm. Uh, no matter what happens, I'm fine. As as, as dark as it gets, um, they live in a bigger world than just the small s self. Perfect. The big that, that, right. The big s connected. I like to self. say it pulls a lens back yeah. on experience. So here we are in you know, George Harrison's song, I, Me, Mine, though, and everything's just around the ego, like you talked yeah. about earlier. Well, the Beatles got it right. Love is all there is, right? The Beatles got it right. <laughs> Love is all you need. Um, 
And then it pulls it back where they see themselves in a much broader landscape. I mean, people see solar systems. People see the universe unfolding. And they see themselves in a much larger kind of fabric. Yeah. Uh, and it really recalibrates the sense of self in terms of what else we might be connected to. Um, and also people have other, a lot of um, biographical experiences, autobiographical or psychodynamic in nature, revisiting past relationships that were conflictual or traumas and those being resolved by moving into those um, un unfinished business. So there's just so many um, vignettes um, that come our way and uh, it's remarkable. It's powerful. So the people change their relationship with death to themselves, to their view of what matters and what matters and it and it's a single dose that drives sort of long lasting change which is pretty powerful in the space of mental illness and we are in an epidemic crisis of mental illness obviously the opioid epidemic with killing 70,000 people a year um depression anxiety bipolar i mean so many people suffer from deep mental illness and some varying degree of it uh, and we've all probably had moments of depression or anxiety in our life how do you see this tool being used therapeutically? And, and where is this research going and what have we learned so far? Because you've been focused on the death experience, but other right. people are working also in this space, right? Yeah, so a lot's happening. It's really, um, it's been called the renaissance, but I, you know, I like these were the reemergence of these medicines, this research. So there's, there's a few main avenues where we might see clinical um, research. Of course, one, end of life. Which you know, it's um, easy to do. It's 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 and it makes sense, right? So I, I I worked in palliative care, so part of my my work has seen that we don't die well in America. We don't die well. We don't even talk about it until now. We're making some progress. You know, palliative care and hospice is shifting the conversation. There's been conferences around the country and big events organized around death and dying. Let's talk about death and dying. We're all dying. Yeah, at some point, right? From the minute you're born, you're dying. <laughs> the minute you're born, you're dying. Um, so we don't die well. And it's always important to note the first two indications coming out of the 60s research was end-of-life distress and addiction. These are the two main uh, you know, arteries of research. And Aldous Huxley being very important to the end-of-life research, the great literary writer who spoke about um, LSD being helpful in end-of-life experience. And he... Uh, Took huge doses of LSD at the end of his life. Huxley took LSD many times when he was alive and healthy uh, and allowed him to kind of cultivate his theory about the perennial philosophy that these experiences are at the core of all religions. Um, and these entheogens can, can you know, trigger that experience. What you're referring to is, is quite interesting. When he died, um, he had asked his wife, um, Laura Huxley, to administer LSD to him as he was dying. Yes. He wrote, he scribbled it and presented it to her and she injected him. Uh, they had talked about it before. Um, and as he died, uh, she was reading to him from, so there's a Tibetan Book of the Dead, a very famous Tibetan manual about dying and, and the bardos and- Transition she, phases. Yeah, and she was reading from a, a version that was not published yet by Timothy Leary, Ralph Metzner, and, and Dick Albert Ramdas, um, a psychedelic version of that. And reading, in a sense, go forward, go towards the light, go up, you're safe. And it's quite a, it's a poignant vignette she talks about. And then he passed away. Um, the historical note, she, he passes away and she walks out of the bedroom and many people were in the living room at the house supporting her. He was a very well, a very famous figure. And 
Um, they were all huddled around a TV set. Watching Kennedy be shot. Exactly. Yeah. The same day. And she write, writes about that. She says they were both. That was my birthday. I remember that day, 1963. That was your birthday? Yeah. I was four. Yeah. 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 I'm like, why is everybody crying on my birthday? Right. She writes about, a, in a, she has a book called uh, This Timeless Moment. Mm-hmm. And she writes about them saying they were both different in many ways, different backgrounds. And she writes about they were both dedicated their lives to uh, kind of increasing love in the culture. It's, it's quite touching. Um, so he was a, a big figure. So in terms of the clinical work, so yeah. end of life distress. We're all dying. Uh, ideally, could this be used in, in helpful ways? We create centers people go to, have the experience, then go back to their home after hopefully a, a transformational experience about death and dying. Um, addiction. There are studies happening with alcoholism, one at NYU. Um, there's a study beginning with um, MDMA, uh, not psilocybin. Uh, Which is a version of ecstasy. Exactly. Um, with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, we're seeing a new wave of research with psilocybin with major depression. That's been untreatable. It's treatment-resistant. Um at Hopkins, uh, there was a wonderful study with um, going on with smoking cessation, tobacco. People have the experience, and then the, the decrease in their mm-hmm. wanting to smoke has been relieved. So the applications seem to be, you know, numerous. We're seeing yeah. all these possibilities. Uh, Are there pe- any emerging conclusions from some of the research on anxiety or PTSD or with ecstasy or, or MDMA or even with depression and psilocybin? So PTC is just starting, so we'll see that. There was a, a phase two study that showed efficacy and then allowed them to advance to this larger uh, set of, series of uh, studies. So it's, it does uh, seem to work with MDMA. A um, little different. MDMA is not a classic hallucinogen, so I should frame that. A classic hallucinogen category is LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, DMT. And MDMA is what's called an empathogen. You just said DMT. We're going to come back to that. Okay, yeah. Um, <laughs> an empathogen that uh, the the subjective experience is one of this, you know, love. incredible love and empathy. Um, uh, and, and that seems to also re- reset these traumatic experiences people are having from war or childhood trauma. You know, so much of trauma is the body and the mind, both physically and emotionally, reacting to an event that's no longer happening. But if people take MDMA and go to a club, it's not going to do it. They have to be in a therapeutic setting. Right. Same with psilocybin. So people take you know psilocybin and run to a, a concert. Um, it's different. Intention matters. You know why we're taking this medicine, and people we cultivate attention in our research. The set and setting is crucial. Without the proper set and setting, I mean all bets are off as to what the outcome might be. Uh, these people are in a safe setting, prepared, and then going within to the experience in a safe in a safe way. Imagine having eyes open, being at some party or some rave, and all the stimuli coming in. And you're young, possibly, um, maybe too much medicine, and we'll talk about those in a second. Yeah. Um, so um, intention matters. MDMA is a different class of me- of medicine. So. So are people getting results around depression that's treatment resistant or that's still new. That's that's about to happen in we the don't States know and in Canada. We only know through the cancer study. But people who are but depressed. That, that we saw in the cancer study that, that they were really less depressed. depressed. So importantly, clinically in the cancer studies at Hopkins, um, at NYU, and then a prior study with UCLA, depression, anxiety dropped off the day after the session. Hmm. So you see depression, anxiety, then we see compared to placebo. Day after session, after the medicine session, it just drops off. 
Mm. to these dramatic levels statistically and sustains up to the end of the study. A demoralization, an awful experience of hopelessness, meaninglessness decreases rapidly. A spiritual being increases. Mm. Um, 70% rec- reported it was the single most meaningful experience of my life. It's not That's the, incredible. These, right. So you've got all this work going on around therapeutic uses for people with varied degrees of mental illness or distress. Has anybody sort of looked at using these substances as a way of taking people who are not suffering from those, but enhancing their life experience, changing their worldview, changing their relationships, being a better person, connected to something? I mean, I just wonder if, if you know, we would have wars and violence and all these things if everybody had to go through some initiation, right, when they were <laughs> yeah. growing up and changing their worldview of what matters and what's connected to what. That's the most common question we get asked. Is it really? Yeah. There isn't a talk we give her. You know, and the answer is? <laughs> the answer is, but it's like a birthright, people. Why should everyone have this, right? Um, or it's been phrased as the betterment of all people. Why do we have to have a clinical disorder? So obviously, as a, a clinical researcher, doing FDA research, um, you know, we can't speak about giving it, you know, healthy people sure. using it. But but that's a strong indication. Could it, could it be used in healthy people? And it has been used with healthy people. The Good Friday study, uh, current work with meditators and healthy normals at Hopkins. Um, and we're seeing the same experience. So and you're doing a study on religious leaders. People and we're doing a study with religious leaders who are healthy people. Uh, and again, the same experience. I'd love to know what happens to the Dalai Lama when he takes psilocybin. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, nothing, it's fine. It's, I've been in the state I, forever. I've been there already. It's one leader we didn't get for our research, the Dalai Lama. Uh, and we'll, we'll speak about that. Um, but, I mean, you said a, a good word. I mean, pro-social, pro-ethical implications. Yeah. You know, people tell us, and, you know, again, we're scientists, and you hear this language over and over again, that we're all connected. Now, again, we hear that through our religion. And... They say well, we're actually—it's it's an illusion. We're separate. Yeah. Right? So if that's true, you know where this is going. How do we hurt one another? Right. I mean, the Buddhist notion of right—if you were me and I am you, why would I? Yeah. I mean, so we're all connected, and so then the violence would. Um, so that that as of now, there aren't a lot of research studies for for healthy people. Um, could this down the road have centers where there are regulated therapists and they're used? You know, we'll see. Um, I, I want to make the point. These should only be used in regulated, I think, licensed right, And the uh, truth centers. is, you can't get this. This is only under research protocols these now. Very so you can't clinical. go to your psychiatrist, hey, can you take me through this? He can't or she can't do that. It has to be on an approved scientific protocol. Right. And there's very few going on now. There's a few, but clinical trials. Um, I bet you have everybody knocking on your door to get in. <laughs> Yeah, um, and, and it's a bit, it's poignant. People write us or call us looking for the medicine because they're suffering of some sort of human mm. suffering, and we have we have the answer. And Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, is really about the exploration of this work and what's possible across a spectrum of disorders, it takes you through the history of, of this from an ancient point of view as well as sort of a modern scientific point of view. It's really quite a field, and... You know, I, I we chatted a little bit earlier, but uh, I recently encountered a number of people who tried something called ibogaine, yeah. which is a from a bark of a African tree, which has been used for I don't know how many hundreds of years as part of ritual initiations and healing. Uh, and you know, the stories around that are fascinating because it's been used for treating heroin addiction, 
back in the 70s and then it got kind of outlawed. And now it's not even available under any protocol here. And there are places in Mexico and other places, places where people can actually go and have this experience, which is medically supervised in a controlled environment. And uh, we were talking about earlier, but people who go through heroin withdrawal is a very serious physiological mechanism that somehow gets interrupted yeah. by this drug, which and it's a one-time treatment. And on top of that, people share that their personalities change, that their mood disorders changes, that their brain changes, that these are profound effects. And we're so afraid of these things because they're, you know, illicit drugs or they're not understood or they're natural substances that who knows what they do and are they safe. But the stories I've heard are just remarkable. People have been alcoholics for years who've had personality issues, who've had severe depression, who aren't functional, all of a sudden get their life back in one day. <laughs> it's stunning. What do you um, make of that? Well, you know, some of that's similar with the psilocybin. You know, the Hopkins study showed that um, the sense of openness, one of the most important personality constructs, changed for the better in the psilocybin research. That's unseen, not seen before. Yeah, because these our personalities are formed in the late teens, early twenties, early adulthood, yeah. and they're kind of concrete, they're static. Yeah, they how do you open in. your heart when you're and they, they change and your doors um, shut for years? Right. Um, what's stunning about the ibogaine? And I, I, we don't do ibogaine research, but and you mentioned this that the physiology withdrawal, which is an awful experience for a heroin user, which is why people re return to it. Right. Even those who have stopped opiates um, and have passed acute withdrawal can later still return because of that, they still don't feel right. It's called post-acute withdrawal syndrome. It can go on for two years, some people say. Yeah. Acute withdrawal is over, but there's something that's uneasy about their experience. But the, the Ibogaine patients say that the craving just stops. It stops. So how, you know, I could kind of understand. Does it work for sugar? <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope so. I, I would I'd be helpful. Um, <laughs> sign me up, right? Right, sign me up. No um, more diet books from Dr. Hyman. Just. <laughs> right. Um, no more donuts. Uh, and we see that also in the psilocybin study. We see the emotional changes, but to kind of abort the physiology withdrawal. Stunning. So we're, at a, we're kind of at a cusp of this new you know, direction. Um, it's fascinating because we, we've sort of um, been so afraid of these things. And, yeah. and yet there may be treasure troves of natural substances that work with our biology to actually help enhance our, our life experience. What, what's striking to me is that um, you know, people who've had these experiences, it does change them. It changes their whole life. Like you said, Houston Smith, who was a, a student at this seminary who actually, Remarkable. Yeah. yeah, who I've read a lot of his books on Buddhism and Asian philosophy and religion, uh, changed his life. And I think you look at Aldous Huxley, he wrote mm -hmm. The Doors of Perception after someone introduced him to mescaline. Mm -hmm. And from a very sort of descriptive analytical point of view, he described his experience and it's led to you know his 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 whole movement of human consciousness and human potential that sort of came out of that it's like a it's like a it's like a little rabbit hole you go down like Alice in Wonderland it's a shortcut uh and and, and I think there's some judgment about you know well well if this is just a shortcut you're not really you know waking up you're not really becoming conscious you need to meditate for 30 years and but you're you're saying that this actually shifts people in some permanent or semi-permanent way yeah, we're certainly seeing that. And I'm, I'm, you know, to revisit Huxley, which I'm always happy to do. You know, it, it's unfortunate that the, the 60s experience, whatever that was, got such um, uh, a large part of the story. Yeah. There's a small part of the story. Yeah. I mean, thousands of years 
of these medicines used in religious and spiritual frameworks. Um, 50s and 60s research, people like Huxley and, and Smith, right? Uh, Houston Smith. Um, and then this, you know, mid 60s uh, phenomena um, that drove it all off, you know, stopped the research. But we are seeing those changes. Huxley spoke about them. He felt this tapped into that mystical experience, the kind we see that occurs naturally. You know, Walter Stace, the great researcher, someone was asked him um, about mysticism. Are these the same as an actual naturally occurring experience? Because it isn't. This, it isn't similar. It's the same. Mm. Not just it's, it's it's the same experience. Um, and again, we keep coming back to that. I mean, we're wired for meaning. Why they're so infrequent is you know a big question. If these experiences we're worried for are so adapt, you know, pro-ethical, pro-social, why are humans, the species, so, um, why are they so infrequent? Because look at the world around us, and we're speaking today from, it's a very tough zeitgeist in our right. world. Right, uh, uh, I mean, it, it, historically, we were part of cultures that right. had embedded in them regular practice of ritual right. and tradition and creating context for these experiences, whether they were dancing around the fire or drumming or chanting or practices that engendered the same type of experience whether they were vision quests and every culture has these rituals and rites of initiation and tradition uh some of them don't use drugs like you know for example if you are a native american you go f take a sweat lodge and you go fast for four days and you know that'll change your consciousness right <laughs> you know and i've done that when i was younger it, it really shifts your relationship to yourself to the world around you to what matters to what's meaning and it drives you know, a life that is more full of love and connection and appreciation and takes down a lot of the things that are emerging in our world today, which is hate and division and separation, otherness. It's sort of the opposite of that. Yeah. You know, I wonder if we got all the world leaders together and all the haters together and just took them through these guided experiences. I wonder well, what would change. That's the what world. Alan Ginsberg wanted to do back oh, really? in the 60s. Um, oh. Yeah, it does. You know, it's interesting that these medicines are returning now as well. I mean, it's. It's kind of a, a tenuous time, uh, and in in the world, and and you know, uh, again, the, these medicines and these experiences seem to promote unity. And it's interesting that the core of each religion, you, you said it beautifully, that this is experience. Every religion began with a mystical experience by one person or a few people, mm. and then next step was people organized around that person and created you know scripture and symbols. But as the centuries go on. We're left with these silos of ritual and scripture, but the initial mystical experience mm -hmm. is removed. Yeah. So we're left with all the the framework and the symbols that connect us to the sacred, but the initial mystical core is now just it recedes. Mm -hmm. um, so the religions are just incredible frameworks to connect to that. That's how they began, uh, and, and and the reason for the study we're doing. So you mentioned earlier the religious leader study. Yeah, tell so, us about that. Yeah, so it's it's really a lifelong dream. So mm -hmm. kind of piggybacking this famous study from 1962. Reverend O'Malley, come on and take some mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Rabbi, you know, <laughs> come on and take a little mushrooms. And we've been doing that. So, you know, again, Walter Penke was a remarkable figure from the early 60s. He passed away early in his life, um, but was doing this study with theology students. So this study, which is just, a, you know, remarkable and a lifelong dream, us and a group at Hopkins recruited religious leaders, ideally from all the traditions we're hoping to get. 
primarily they've been Judeo-Christian because it's the most common. I want to get the, the Buddhist monks who are meditating for 50 years. Right. <laughs> and, and there's a meditator study at, at Hopkins as well that looks at that. Um, and since these experiences can be described in a spiritual way, why not have them have the experience mm -hmm. to have them help us describe what's called the phenomenology of the experience in yeah. this landscape yeah. to better get a sense of what, what is the ground of these experiences. Yeah. These are healthy people. Right. So it isn't a clinical study. It's called basic science or to understand the phenomena of something. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have two sessions in this study, two psilocybin sessions, no placebo. So they know they're getting the real thing both times. And it's been really gratifying to to be with them to watch the experience it's not published yet so i can't can you share some talk of their, about it. their experiences i can't because we're not published yet but I, I could say in a general way one these are incredible people such you know gratitude to these people unsung heroes i mean out there social justice um feeding the poor uh, and making a living out of trying to you know do religion which so they already best, are connected right they're these connected are these are these are ordained clergy and then it's best religion is doing the work of why are we here? You know, suffering, love, misery, what, what is this? Um, being seekers. Um, and so they come in and have, you know, just wonderful experiences. I will say this. They're not different from the non-religious leaders because in the end, we're basically, we're simply human, as uh, Sullivan once said, um, Harry Stuck Sullivan. So the experience is described in the same way often. Love, connectivity. Compassion, forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness comes up a lot. Uh, so, uh, but it's also remarkable to hear them talk about it, hopefully in their own vernacular, their own. Yeah. These are professional people in religion. Yeah. So they have a, a vernacular. Uh, uh, they're trained to study these experiences. They have a language for it. A language. Then now they can have the experience. Mm. Uh, so the, we'll probably publish it in about two years. We're still midway through, and um, it's but it's it's very exciting. It's really very exciting. So you're um, dealing with people in different states of suffering, consciousness, mood disorders, death, and even the the well. Yeah. Um, often people, as a legacy of the '60s, have heard about the bad trip. Right. Right. The the the, the triggering psychosis, triggering anxiety freaking out having to go be talked down i mean in the context of the work you're doing i mean i understand that if you're at some you know the woodstock and it's a zoo and you got like everybody's energy and lights and craziness that you could have a bad trip but yeah. what what's the data show really about the reality of this fear that people have about losing their mind or having a bad trip or becoming psychotic so it's a great question um and it led to the fear of these medicines right but I, but I do want to be clear, you could have panic. And people do have so-called bad trips. It's not a great term. I'll, I'll, re, I'll, try, to, I'll try to redefine it. Um, uh, when they do it at, you know, on their own, right? So it could be quite anxiety-producing. Um, but right, there was that folklore that if you took it, you would you know, lose your mind. Um, Which may or may not really have been true. I don't know how much evidence there was to that effect. It was amplified and distorted somewhat. Right. Um, but we screen carefully. You know, we're screening for medical disorders and psychiatric histories. So, so hearing people, voices in your head before you take the mushrooms. You, you can't be in this study. No. So people with history of schizophrenia or psychotic spectrum disorders or various, um, you know, psychiatric uh, disorders would be screened out of the study because that might be, that would be a contraindication and might provide the ground for someone to have so-called a psychotic experience, right, or anxiety-provoking experience. Um, 
Although we don't really know. We're just, right? We're just assuming that those are potentially at risk people. Right. Well, we, we know that if someone has a history, it could trigger that. Mm-hmm. You know, so the so called, uh, there was the folklore that people it triggered um, a psychotic break or schizophrenic, you know, episode. Um, more likely was that that might have been dormant in their genetic, right? There, yeah. there. Um, early twenties is where people had their first breaks, right. so that that might have been a co-occurring. Um, but in our research, while there are anxiety-provoking stretches in the session, again, anything can come up autobiographical throughout your lifespan, recovered traumas, um, images of death, um, all types of archetypal and visionary experiences. Many could be challenging but by moving into it in the safe setting we see them you know become teachable moments mm-hmm. um we're not seeing the bad trip you're not the reason why i said uh, try to frame it differently i like the word better a difficult experience which we all have every day in our life you know walking to the bus stop you're having a thought about something and that could be a difficult experience right. um, things happen all the time that are difficult um in the research, no one leaves that night. No one's left our session at 5 p.m. After this extraordinary change in consciousness, and sometimes challenging with anxiety or panic or memories of a bad trip, right? So that's yeah. important to know. It tells you something. Which isn't the same um, when sentence setting isn't regulated. Mm. So people listening are probably wondering, how do I get this? When can I get it? I have this problem. I'm anxious i'm depressed nothing's working they want to do shock therapy they want to do ketamine they want to give me five different drugs i just i'm tired of this suffering and yet we're not really there yet and it's challenging for people to think about that waiting period so how how far away do you see the fda approval for this work how much work more needs to be done what can we hope it's a good point i think we were speaking earlier i'm not sure if on camera or off but we get all these emails now, people looking for the medicine who are suffering uh, because of the press and the books and all the uh, the literature that's um, talking about it and, and the studies themselves. Most like, so we're now, in, so there, um, phase two research is done to, to show, um, demonstrate safety and efficacy. And the next step is called phase three, phase three trials, which is a multi-site. And if those, those findings mirror phase two findings then you're on your way to it being rescheduled by the fda mm-hmm. for a narrow specific clinical application or a reason right yeah. so the, the the first few that will likely become rescheduled hopefully five ten years wow somewhere in there That's a while some say a little sooner some say a little more but i think it's a safe bet between five and seven or eight nine ten how does this work because these are not drugs they're they're nat- natural substances right. which can't be patented Right. Right. So, uh, so first, the applications might be probably end of life distress, hopefully, depression, PTSD, addiction. Those top four might be the first ones going through the gate for rescheduling. Hopefully, who's paying for these studies? If they're, you know, because those are they're not government funded. It's primarily philanthropy, private uh, donors. Um, And yes, these are found in nature. But so we're not giving patients mushrooms, by the way. A laboratory makes psilocybin, the compound from mushrooms specific magic mushrooms um and uh it's in a capsule that they take uh how would this look if rescheduled it wouldn't be at your cvs people wouldn't go and find it somewhere albert hoffman's vision the founder of lsd was to create centers yeah where people would go 
for the clinical reason, depression, anxiety, end of life, addiction. Maybe spend a week or two in a safe setting, preparation, uh, other you know holistic, healthy modalities. Have the experience or experiences, and return to their world, um, to their to their their life. That's what ideally looked. Or in clinic settings, that it's the medicine will be will be attached to a setting. There's not, not going to be little shops like there's pot shops all over. <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting. I mean, we 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 often miss things that are so important in science because we have beliefs or fears. And and you're uh, you're one of the few who's brave enough to say, well, this is a scientific question. Let's generate a hypothesis. Let's test it. Let's see what happens. It may be good in here. And yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're 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 grateful. And again, to the to the first wave of research, we're really kind of picking up uh, where they where they left off back in the in the sixties and early seventies. Yeah, it's powerful, and I think you know it's important uh, to understand this thinking differently about the brain because what you're suggesting is that there are substances out there that come from the natural world that are working in ways that we've never seen drugs work, which is you take one dose. It's like taking one dose of aspirin and never getting a headache again. Right. <laughs> like It just doesn't work like right. that. You can't take one dose of a statin, your cholesterol right. is down forever. You're actually seeing profound changes in people's well-being, in their sense of self, and their relationship to others, and their compassion for the world, for what matters. Uh, and it's, mm. you know, I, I think you know we're all looking for the quick fix, but in a sense, in a sort of context of ritual of, like you call it, set and setting, uh, with a purpose. That these are very profound substances that take us to places in our consciousness that are very hard to access for the average human. And if you're living in Tibet in the 1800s and you're, you know, you can meditate in a cave the whole time, you might get there, but most of us aren't really yeah. able to do that. And I think I find this fascinating, not just from the point of view of therapeutic doses and therapeutic treatments, but from the point of view of, you know, what does it mean for exploration of human consciousness yeah. and awareness? And I just had lunch with Deepak Chopra a couple of days yeah. ago. And we were talking about this, and you know, he he's, he says, "I want to spend the rest of my life focusing on the nature of consciousness." And that's all there is. And where, where is consciousness? Yeah, I have no freaking clue. <laughs> but no one does, right? I think it's you know, my left it? ear, maybe. <laughs> what is it? Where is it? Um, yeah. And can these medicines be tools to understand? the neurobiology of mystical experience, and to help us understand what is consciousness. It really is a paradigm shift in medicine. And I will quote the great Houston Smith again. Um, he says famously, a spiritual experience doesn't make a spiritual person necessarily. It's what you do with it. So the idea, and I'm glad you said quick fix, this isn't a quick fix. You know, People can't go take this medicine, then, but it's a sense setting, and then what they do with it. That's the integration part. Take this experience and how does it change your life? Implement some of the changes. Um, uh, so it really does to be a paradigm shift. And we'll see. Again, it's slow. It's slowly moving forward. Safety, efficacy, and then hopefully in 10 years, we'll see where we are. What makes you realize that your narrow sense of the world, your, your sensory experience of what's true and not true, is just you know one narrow sliver of reality and that we can actually access other aspects by these sort of trap doors, if you will, uh, you know, whether it's various practices like meditation or more sort of shortcutty experiences like using substances to change parts of your brain chemistry to allow you to sort of have these perceptions. And then that it has a huge impact for who you are and what you are. And I, I, uh, I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy, but about a year or two, two years ago, I got very sick 
And I, my body shut down, my brain shut down, my emotions were really not available to me. Um, very, very ill in bed for five months. And the only thing I had was my consciousness. And I began to sort of identify that I wasn't all these things. I wasn't my body. I wasn't my thoughts. I wasn't my emotions. Uh, there was something else. And that had a profound impact on me. And I've been studying this for my whole life in terms of human consciousness. I majored in Buddhism in college. I've explored all these worlds, read these books. And I find that, uh, you know, it, that experience sort of knocked me down, but forced me to be aware of the fact that this physical realm is just one piece. And that uh, yeah. I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but if you could take a mushroom trip and have that, it might be okay. Wow, what, that was two years ago? Yeah. Uh -huh. So that's the insight we're seeing, right? Yeah. You, you had, yeah. you cultivated, that's what we're seeing. Yeah. Um, which again is at the foundations of religion. You study Buddhism, I mean. And there's overlapping constructs. In Buddhism, you know, sunyata, the emptiness of all existence, but filled with the everythingness of yeah. interconnectivity. In Christianity, the, they call the apophatic theology. Um, these similar constructs. Um, could this provide a way for interreligious dialogue? Yeah. That while different frameworks, they, they spring from the same source of being. That's true. So, so you get these clinical applications, very concrete, and you get these kind of more lofty insights into the nature of self. What is religion? Um, what are we? I mean, I love your story. Um, Essentially, you know, you talked at the beginning about Einstein's quote about God yeah. and science and religion. And, you know, we've done a lot of work in our culture to separate science and religion right. and having no contact, contact between the two or context to understand how they relate. And yet... You know, there's not science and religion, no. or and I, I don't even like the word religion. It's more yeah. of a, a spiritual sort right. of framework of us as human beings. Right. That is something that we uh, we we sort of keep separate, and and unfortunately, uh, we don't need to do that. And you they you really not. are of scientists are talking about love and God and consciousness, and these are really far out there things for most people to sort of put together. They were not separate. I mean, Carl Sagan, the great Carl Sagan. You know, said the same thing. Alan Watts, the great, yeah. you know, Jesuit priest, then, um, uh, Alan priest, then Zen uh, Buddhist and kind of 60s uh, leader. Um, and many others have said, you know, Sagan says they weren't separate. It's only in the, you know, 1500s, 1600s that religion and science became kind of separate, you know, avenues. Um, they both came out of the, an impulse, a human impulse to describe what is this? Yeah science and spirituality and that they're separate is really unfortunate you know ideally we don't lose sight of the shoulders we stand upon and the prior experiences not only in terms of religion and the origins of religion but these figures alan watts incredible figure aldous huxley yeah, I mean, I um, read all this stuff. you know on and on um you know incredible figures and kind of pushing forward this idea that both science and religion are here to help describe yeah. what this is. Yeah. That's what religion should be, not just a bunch of my, you know, tribalism. My, my God's better than your God. How can yeah, there yeah. be two different universe? You know, um, you know, that's the work. Um, uh, and um, it's so, it, yeah. Alan Watson and and Sagan. You know, there's a great, you know, William James wrote his famous "The Variety of the Religious Experience," and Sagan wrote. There's a book edited of his lectures. The varieties is of scientific experience. And there's one also called mystical experience from a different author. Um, but they're all leading to the same, ideally leading to the same impulse. What is this, Mark? You've been listening to The Doctor's Pharmacy with Professor Anthony Bassas, who's from NYU, 
talking about his research on psychedelics, both in transition to end of life, anxiety, depression, the nature of the mystical experience, religion, science, all of it. It's quite mind blowing. <laughs> and I really am grateful for you being on the podcast with us today, Tony. This is great. I really enjoyed our conversation. So you've been listening to The Doctor's Pharmacy with Dr. Mark Hyman, the place for conversations that matter. And if you love this podcast, please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Share with your friends and family on Facebook and Twitter. And we'll see you next time on The Doctor's Pharmacy. Great. Thanks, Mark.